Welcome into another edition of the Dana Victory Podcast, only available on musketeerreport.com. I am Rick, and for this edition of the podcast, I am joined by the legend, Brian Snow, and Dan is also on the line. Gentlemen, it uh, has been a while since we last talked, but there is some news to talk about now. Xavier has two new commitments, so we will break that down in this episode. How are you guys doing? Let's just try to have a better podcast than whatever debacle the last one was. Well, look. As long as Dan's house isn't under siege by varmints and uh, he doesn't have any mammals dying this week, I think we should be in a, a good spot. Or, or I, like his stand-up routine. Has he been working on that? No. My house is not infested with vermin. Don't put on the internet that my house is infested with vermin. Please I, don't say that about Dan's house, guys. There is a cat here keeping watch. I have assigned her to, uh, to keep close watch around the recording area. To make sure that there is there are no interruptions to what I'm sure will be a podcast of incredible uh, information and insight. Well, uh, I am locked in, so I guess we'll just jump right into it. Xavier landed two commitments within the last week, both of them transfers. The first being Adam Kunkel. He is a local guy, originally from Cooper High School in Northern Kentucky or Latonia, however you want to say it, um, and he's transferring from Belmont, where he really became a star kind of overnight in in that conference, the OVC. Uh, he went from basically being unused his freshman year to averaging over 16 points a game, shooting 39% from three. Uh, Snow, let's just start with what type of player he is and what will translate to the Big East level, in your opinion. Uh, making shots translates at every level. So I would say that's the one thing that you can point to. Like when you look at a, when you look at transfers coming that are coming up. It's do they have a high major skill that they can rely on? And Adam Kunkel does in being able to chops. And there's no substitute for that. And it's not like he's Brad Redford. He's got game beyond being able to make shots. But he's going to be a shot maker, and he's going to be a shot maker at whatever level of basketball he plays in going forward. Yeah, I mean, obviously it's something that Xavier has missed the last two years. I mean, I – how many times have we harped on it over the last, the first two years of Travis Steele's coaching uh, 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 regime is the fact that the team just can't knock down shots, no matter how open they are. I, I don't think there's any question. I don't think either of you would disagree with me that Kunkel will be the best shooter that Steele has had on his roster uh, when he checks in next year, probably. I mean, yeah. I guess CJ Wilcher maybe, but we don't know whether that'll, whether he'll be able to do it at the college level yet. So uh so I, I and probably I would say he's the best shooter that Xavier will have had since Trayvon Blewett, um, and that's something that this team has needed desperately. Uh, I also like the fact that you know he, and I I'm kind of going to read into this, but I listened to uh, to you and Skinny talking about him on your show, Rick, and I know you and Richard both uh, both covered Kunkel in high school, and I mean this is a kid that went to Belmont. And it was kind of viewed as a good level for him. Like he'd be a four-year player there and maybe be a starter at the end. And he went basically supernova as a sophomore, uh, averaging, you know, I, I believe he was, I believe he led his team in scoring, um, you know, one of the best players in the OVC. So I suspect this is a kid that's got a lot to prove and he's going to show up on campus and when he becomes eligible is going to want to demonstrate that he's a Big East caliber kid because this is a guy that wasn't recruited by a Xavier or a UC or a UK or a Louisville when he was in high school. Yeah, they and all he's, want him now, though. Yeah, he's they, definitely they a all at least were interested in him now. He's definitely super confident. Um, so I, I agree with you, Dan. I think he'll ha he'll take that type of approach. And I mean, most most guys are going to say that, you know. Uh, but I do think he's the type of guy that mentally will handle it well and, and can live up to it. To, to add on to the whole thing about Xavier needing a shooter, I think it's important to note that, like, Ryan Wellage was a really good shooter, right? But he just wasn't he, – he didn't have feel, and he wasn't equipped to play at the Big East level. There's been other guys that could make a shot, but they can't offer you more than that, um, that Xavier's tried to bring in. That's the difference with Kunkel, is they're not bringing him in as a guy who can just make a shot off the bench. He's a guy who understands how to play. He's got really good feel, really good IQ. He will make guys around him better. He will be able to play off of guys within a system. So I think that's kind of one of the keys when you're saying Xavier needs to add shooting. There's no doubt they need to add shooting and skill, but they've also needed to add guys who, who can 
play ball and not just be a, a one-trick pony. And I think that's Adam Kunkel. So uh, I think he's, in my opinion, the best transfer Xavier has landed. Obviously, he'll have to prove that because uh, Hanky McSpanky was pretty good in his own right. Uh, but in terms of talent, I will take Kunkel um, over Hankins. Let's uh, move on to Ben Stanley. He transferred in from Hampton just uh, this this past week on Wednesday. And he's really kind of a unique player, Snow. He's about 6'5", 6'6", a front court player, very strong, very explosive. What jumps out to you first when you watch his film? Well, just that we have very similar body types. That's probably the first thing. (laughs) I noticed that. Yeah, people forget that. Um, But just how athletic he is and how strong he is. Like, it's like just this, like, muscle-bound freak of nature dunking. And then what surprises you is he's got a nice touch off the dribble and kind of a flip shot hook floater thing. Um, he's got a, he's more than a dunker. Like he's definitely more than a dunker. Um, but the explosion and the ability to, you know, put his chin on the rim, it's, it stands out. Looking at his statistics. I mean, the one thing that kind of popped out to me as I look through here is first of all, really efficient score, Shot him a 60% from two, granted against very poor opposition. But the other thing was he actually, uh, he, he shot, he's not a great free throw shooter, but he got 224 free throw attempts last year. That is 70 or 50 more than any member of the Xavier team from last year. So this is a dude that can get to the line. This is a dude that obviously has physical tools. Um, from what we've seen from his film, it looks like he's a guy that, that has pretty good hands that can catch the ball and kind of like, you know, whenever you think about a six, five uh, front court player at Xavier, you think of course of CJ Anderson and uh, he seems to be able to get the ball to the rim uh, despite being undersized, even against like the better quality teams that Hampton played last year. uh, He was able to be productive. Yeah. I mean, Illinois didn't have much of an answer for him. And Illinois had a pretty good front court. I think we've seen some things like on the message board where people have mentioned Tyreek Jones and stuff in him in the same sense. I will say I don't see that comparison at all. I mean, they're both strong and they dunk. But other than that, they're totally different players uh, to me. Stanley is, I mean, there's some C.J. Anderson because of the fact that he's undersized and he's tough and he's going to play more of a front court spot. But, I mean, he's totally different as an athlete than CJ and moves totally different from him. He really is kind of a different player. And I agree with you, Snow. I was kind of shocked when I watched his film, you see sort of the numbers and how much he's doing right around the rim. And you think, okay, this guy's going to be totally unskilled, but then you watch it. And I mean, within 12 feet, he's pretty damn reliable. And, and his numbers bear that out because he was really efficient as a, as a scorer around that area. Yeah. And then he's dynamic in transition. He's a problem in transition. If you look at his synergy numbers, and then as a pick and roll guy, I, I think, especially with Dewan Odom, who's really good in pick and roll, ball screen situations, um, they they could be able to use him in some unique ways, especially even the, like hypothetical eligible this year, and we do not know if he is, but hypothetically, if he is, you know. If, he, if he's on the court at the same time as like C.J. Wilcher and Nate Johnson or something, there's going to be a lot of space coming off those ball screens for him to have room for lob passes and things like that. I think Xavier could do some interesting things with Ben and just how they want to play him. And then, you know, Rick, he was horrendous defensively. There, there's no two ways around it. But as one person who watched Hampton quite a bit told me, like, I'm not even sure if they practice defense. So is he going to be a horrendous Big East defender? There, there's a chance. But, or was that a function of the environment? And I don't think there's any way to know that until he gets in Xavier's environment. Yeah, I think the good thing on that note is that it looks like he's at least trying. It looks like he wants to be there and playing defense. He's one of the only guys on his team, maybe the only guy on his team who actually had that look when he was on that end of the court. But when you have no help around you and there's not really a system in place, it's tough to be good on defense. So um, there's definitely some benefit of the doubt that goes in his favor here. But at the same time, if you haven't been taught proper technique and you haven't been used to playing in a system and all of a sudden you're just going to try to do that at a much higher level, I'm skeptical about how well that works out as well. So I don't think you can just flip that switch and say, now he's going to be taught how to play defense and he'll be good. It's going to be a process. So, That is definitely a big concern. I wish he rebounded at a little bit of a higher rate 
but I also think that might improve considering he won't have to shoulder the same scoring load for Xavier that he did at Hampton. He can focus a little more on being a role guy and, and going and chasing rebounds off the glass a little bit more. But I, I think the, the most interesting thing about his game is what you mentioned, Snow, and that's I don't know that I've ever seen a guy who was second leading scorer in his entire conference and his most used play type is the pick and roll as the roll man. Uh, that's kind of a unique way to get your points if you average over 20 a game. And so I think that bodes well to how his game will transfer at the high major level because that's what you're going to ask him to do. You're going to ask him to set screens for people and then play off of them. And uh, clearly that's where he's comfortable uh, ma- making things happen. Snow, you mentioned trans- that he's a monster in transition. What does that look like? Is he just a pure trailer that's coming in and trying to dunk everything? Or is he a guy that will get out on the wing and uh, sort of participate in the, in the primary break? Uh, well, he'll be in the primary break because he's really fast baseline to baseline. He's going to run the court and put a ton of pressure on the defense. And then he's got great hands, which allows him to catch on the move. And theoretically, you don't want him putting it down to dribble, but he's capable of doing that. But catch on the move and dunk or lay it in, be effective in that way. But it gets down to his ability to just change ends faster than the guy guarding. Yeah, that, but the, the hands and the body control are, are really important there. It's the same thing that makes him so good as a, as a pick-and-roll guy because he can catch in traffic and, and change on a dime if, if defenders try to slide in front of him. That's the same thing that makes him really good in transition. He can catch in traffic and you know, make a Euro step around somebody and finish despite being 225 pounds and, and muscular. And, you know, this is – and you, you guys mentioned the waiver issue earlier. I mean, this is not your typical issue where it's like – the only question whether or not the guy gets a waiver is whether or not he's going to use up his eligibility this year, next year, or the following two years. Stanley redshirted his freshman year at Hampton, and therefore if he has to sit out this year, if the NCAA doesn't grant that waiver, I believe he'd lose a year of eligibility. So he'll only have one left last next season. So this waiver decision is pretty big uh, for his career, certainly, and also for this year's Xavier team, I think. Yeah, um, and – I'm sure Xavier probably has taken a pronged approach to the waiver, if I had to guess. One would be talking about the benefits to him and his professional future. Um, And then the second would probably be related to academics. Uh, Ben, his freshman year, I believe he was not academically eligible at Hampton. Hmm. I think they, which would probably imply to me, and obviously I don't know this, I'm not, you know, like he's probably got an IEP of some kind. And since Hampton's going full online, I would assume that Xavier's going to make some kind of argument that given his education needs, that online schoolwork is not in his best interest. Mm. So my guess is it's kind of going to be a multi-pronged approach, but that's me guessing based on the fact that Xavier is confident that they can get him a waiver and I don't believe that Hampton's going to work with Xavier on this. Typically, um, if, if both parties agree, you know, if Hampton just wants to say, like, we don't care, he would get eligible right away, no questions asked. I don't believe that'll happen in this case because Hampton didn't want him to leave, which is understandable. Um, so I think it's going to have to come down. Xavier's going to have to case, be it the professional path, be it academic-oriented, um, as to why he should be deemed immediately eligible, and, and that's why he made this move, you know, et cetera. Yeah, I would like to say, you know, you mentioned will he, will he be eligible this year or not. I think you need to temper expectations from a fan perspective, even if he is eligible this year. Uh, I think Ben Stanley is a nice pickup. I think he will add depth. And I definitely think, you know, if he gets to play for two years, his second year, he could be a, a, a major impact guy, Um that plays a lot of minutes, but this year I don't think he changes a whole lot for this Xavier team aside from, from giving them more depth. I, I, I mean, every, pretty much every guy that we've seen transfer up has needed some time to get acclimated to the jump up. And that was even before Xavier moved to the big East, like Travis Taylor did it in the a 10 and we saw how that went to me. Jason Carter was a better prospect at Ohio before he transferred to Xavier than Ben Stanley was at Hampton. So now, now Stanley has some things athletically that work in his favor that might may be beneficial making that jump. But I still think expectations need to be tempered, especially for his first season uh, while he's making that transition. The one thing I will add is because this is a weird season and 
the three of us on this podcast live in reality. Um, one interesting part of this is if you're a coach, you're going to say at any given point, I'm going to have two guys out due to the coronavirus. So having that depth might be more important this year than it typically is Good point. because you could legitimately be without a starter for two weeks due to you know COVID. So I think having an extra body or two actually is important um, given the circumstances that we're in as a country and as a, as a world as a whole. It also may play in his favor a little bit that, uh, I mean, the season, it seems difficult for me to believe that the college basketball season is going to start on time. Um, and so maybe he gets the benefit of having more time to acclimate to playing every day with Biggie's caliber players on his own team. Um, maybe that allows the coaches more time to work with him. Um, maybe that gives him a little bit softer landing. Of course, if the season does start after January 1, that means the only teams they're going to be playing are Big East teams. So it will be a baptism by fire to the extent that he plays. I'll say this. There is a possibility that the season, instead of being a November to March season, will be a January to May season. Um, it's wholly unworkable in football. It's very, very workable in basketball. And CBS would need some convincing on that. But I think for one year, it is a realistic possibility. I'm not saying that's going to happen, but I do think depending on where we are in terms of vaccines and treatments and, and just general numbers in the country, um, I do think it's possible that there could be a pretty standard January to May season. I'm certainly not predicting that. I'm saying that possibility does exist. Now, while we're on that topic, I did talk to a head coach this past week who, um, it's just one guy's opinion, but he, he was very much of the opinion that basketball was going to play basically a, a conference-only schedule with, you know, some some of the adjustments that maybe football is making where, you know, like Xavier may still play UC or something. You have rivalry games within your state or or something of that nature added to the mix um, or maybe some of like the uh, exempt type things would, would happen somehow or some way. I don't know. But he, 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 he expected that and then he thought that the, the way you do the tournament because you won't have these non-conference games to, to really help seed is you expand it for the year and, and do like a 96-team tournament for this season. I know he's not the first person to throw that idea out there, but it was interesting to hear a guy who has been sitting through some of these meetings and who whose uh, team is going to be in this this year. No one really has a clue, but he was very much of the opinion that that would be the way they'd be going. I mean, it's that I'm sure that every contingency possible is being uh, is being considered. And as as you guys know, I mean, things are changing on a week by week basis based on where case levels are, where fatality levels are, where hospitalization rates are. And I know that you can't go anywhere without talking about the coronavirus. You probably don't want to hear us talk about it, especially since none of us really have any clue. But I mean, I'm sitting here, you know, it's the tomorrow's the last day of July and I don't know if my kids are going to live school or not. And I don't know if my wife is going to be teaching at school five days a week or some number of days a week or not at all. So it's, uh, I mean, everything is up in the air at the moment and certainly sports is, uh, is following that. Yeah. And, and one thing I think is important here is, is Rick, I think conference only is likely option, but there are so many things being talked about and and they have time before they have to make this decision which I also think is key is we'll have more information now that might that information might be might turn into we have no information right yeah but like that's still more information but I mean what well I, I mean one thing you can say right now is that we've seen a number of leagues that have gone to the bubble format get through it with relative relative uh uh it seems like uh the you know mls's tournament you know they had obviously issues on the front end but after that it went smoothly nwsl had their bubble tournament in utah the wnba the nba are both underway uh the nhl is in canada so they're you know they don't even have coronavirus anymore it's funny how that works um <laughs> and then uh and, and then, but by, by contrast, we're watching the slow rolling disaster that is Major League Baseball right now. So it's like. Hold on, uh, hold on. I'm going to correct you on that. I don't know if it's as, like, granted, one team's in really bad shape, but 
if there's been no positive tests of a player outside of the Marlins since then, is it really a disaster? I just think that's a warning shot. I, I wouldn't – I don't know. But if, you, but if you thought no one was going no, – no, no. If you're going to through a season I, without anyone getting it, then it's like, well, that was doomed from the start. You know? No, the, but the to fact a certain, only one team has really but, been affected significantly. But to a certain extent, isn't the, isn't the issue that, especially in a, in a compacted season like Major League Baseball, isn't the issue that if an entire team is effectively sidelined – and granted, it's the Marlins, so no one gives a crap. But if this was the New York Yankees, it would be a much bigger deal, Right. Yeah, and, and that's the I don't know exactly what you do with that. Like, do, do you just have a clause in the season that says, "Hey, if you're one of the unfortunate teams that get hit with the plague, sorry, <laughs> you're yeah. out." Well, like, anyway, this you, is a, this uh, is way off the rails, but um, sure. But yeah, so I think, but but I think it's a moving target. I think the fact that there that the likelihood is that the games are not are going to be played behind closed doors. I, I think you guys would agree gives gives them a lot more flexibility. Um, on scheduling and how they're going to do certain things uh, in terms of moving the season, et cetera. It's just going to all come down to what they can do with TV. Yeah. And the, 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 I'll wrap it up by saying this. The, the one thing that the coach did tell me is he said there would be, if they didn't play a college basketball season to have an NCAA tournament, he doesn't really know how mid-majors will continue in college athletics as we know it. He said this past year, they only got a third of their money. Um, and next year, if they didn't get any NCAA money, he really doesn't know how anyone would fund it at the, at the mid-major level for the most part, aside from some of the fortunate schools. So uh, just something to, to think about that uh, maybe some positivity if you're hoping basketball will happen. Uh, let's take a look at Xavier's roster, though, heading into this season because there has been so much change now. You have Nate Johnson and Brian Griffin, the two grad transfers added to the mix. You have possibly Ben Stanley, assuming he gets that that waiver. And then, of course, you have the freshman class, Dwan Odom, C.J. Wilcher, and Colby Jones. Let's just start with a starting lineup. Brian, what do you think is the most likely starting lineup out of this group as things sit here today? Well, we know four starters. Kiki Tandy, Paul Scruggs, Jason Carter, and Zach Fremantle. Where it gets really interesting is, does Dewan start? Does Nate Johnson start? Does Colby Jones or C.J. Wilcher start? Um, if I had to guess, I might guess Nate Johnson just because he's got experience. He has a college-ready body, and he, he can shoot. So maybe Steele starts it off that way. So if you're forcing me to guess, I'm going to guess Tandy, Scruggs, Johnson, Carter, Fremantle as the starters. Then off the bench, let's include Stanley. Um, Stanley, Deontay Miles, Brian Griffin kind of splitting what would really be, I don't know, 35 minutes probably. Um, then probably likely one of the freshmen won't be in the regular rotation and still going to be a deep team that plays, you know, nine guys realistically. That sounds right to me. Uh, when I was thinking about this beforehand, I said three starter spots were absolutely cinched, which would be Fremantle, Carter, and Scruggs. I was kind of thinking of, you know, and I, and Tandy seems, it seems right to go ahead and, and write Tandy into that, to that other guard spot. But yeah, I mean, Snow makes a good point. I, I, I don't see how uh, they would start the year with anybody but Nate Johnson as the, as the fifth starter, unless Dwan Odom just absolutely blows people's doors off in preseason practice. A lot of this may have, may depend on when the season starts as well. But as Snow says, Johnson is a, uh, he's a, he's a veteran guy. He knows what he's doing out there. Good shooter. Um, has the strength and maturity to play at the Big East level. So it, it, it seems logical that he would be your fifth starter. And this may be unfair to say because we don't know what Nate Johnson is going to be like, but let's just use like a guy like Kyle Castlin, for instance, right? I mean, a guy who clearly wasn't one of your best options when it came down to Big East play, but early in the season, he's the grad transfer. He came over. This is his last chance. You give him the benefit of the doubt. He's going to get more minutes, maybe even start all of that type of thing. Do you think a strategy like that may change? Like, again, if, if Nate Johnson, if they really don't feel like he's one of their best five, do you think they just forego that opportunity to, to let him start early in the season if they play like a conference-only schedule, Brian? I think he's going to – I think Travis is going to start his best five, whoever he determines that best five to be. Um, but if, could Colby Jones start? Absolutely. I, I think it's a real possibility, but – I just I could just, see there being a little difference than in like years past where you may just feel like, okay, we're going to 
play four non-conference games here before we play anyone real. We're going to win them all by 15 to 20. It's fine if Nate Johnson is starting right We're now. We're going to start the oldest guys. Right. The most yeah. experienced I guys. just don't yeah. think that'll happen this year if you have a shorter season and a conference-only type season. And, and yeah. Nate Johnson very well may be one of their best five. I'm not saying that at all. Yeah. I mean, well, the positional flexibility that Paul Scruggs gives you means that that fifth starter really could be – it could be Odom. It could be Wilcher. It could be Jones. I mean, you could, you could see any of those three guys being the fifth starter if uh, – if that's the way it, it, it plays out. If one of those three guys is, has separated themselves from Johnson and the other candidates, you could slot them in, and, and Paul's ability to play at any of three positions kind of makes that easy. Yeah. I mean, they, they have a lot of roster flexibility and you know, who can play with who on the court at the same time. Um, you, you might not want to run Odom, Scruggs, Jones, Carter, in miles out there because then you don't have any shooting, but that's your job as to coach to make sure you don't have your four worst shooters on the floor. So the question was asked on the message board about expectations for this year in terms of NCAA tournament and uh, where the team would finish in the big East. What, what, what are your thoughts right now at looking at this roster as it sits? Do you think it's one that's going to compete in the big East or do you think it's middle of the pack or kind of similar to last year or what? Well, I think you're certainly behind Creighton and Villanova in the Big East. I don't think there's any question about that. Um, then I think you're certainly, at least on paper, ahead of DePaul, St. John's, um, Georgetown. Georgetown, and Butler. I think UConn's really good on paper this year. So I could see Xavier anywhere between like four and seven in the big East and keep in mind, there are 11 teams this year, not 10 because of UConn's addition. So I'll say they finish fifth in the big East and kind of have a, like a 10 type seed. I think snow is right. I think uh, around about the middle of the league makes a lot of sense, uh, but <laughs> here's the issue. Um, if it is true that, uh, that Xavier's just going to play all conference games this year, so let's say they play 20 conference games and then maybe two local rivalry games. I mean, if you go, what, 8 and 12 in conference, you're going to end up with a losing record overall. That, that uh, is how that works, yes. And, and if the NCAA tournament is 68 teams, you ain't getting it. So it's, uh, it, becomes, uh, it, it, it becomes a little bit more difficult from my perspective to say, I mean, what Snow is describing there, if you have a traditional non-conference schedule and you finish fifth or sixth in this year's Big East, that's a, that sounds like a nine or ten seed. This year, I don't know what that's going to look like. So it's, it's, it's more well, difficult to say that, but I do think like round about 500 in the Big East seems about right at this point. I mean, you could uh, say that pretty much every year for every team not named Villanova and whoever the worst team in the conference is, DePaul. You know what I mean? Like, but that's the way it shakes out. Yeah, I, mean, I know. Around 500 is a good estimate for every team in the Big East almost every year except for two. Yeah, I mean, what, two years, the difference between the three seed and the seven seed has been like a tiebreaker. It's, a, it's just a very balanced league right now. And every year there's Villanova, and then there's usually one other team that separates themselves at the top end. And uh, then there are the, a couple teams at the bottom, and, yeah, it's just a big mess. Um, Fortunately, Xavier was the other team that bubbled to the top in the last few years of Chris Mack's uh, tenure, and uh, and and now it's Creighton, and hopefully it'll be Xavier again pretty soon. Well, let's take a look at what happens after next season because there's so much uncertainty surrounding it. But Xavier really is kind of building this thing in a, it seems like in an upward trajectory, and that 21-22 roster looks kind of impressive on paper, at least in my opinion, Brian. Um, you're you're going to lose Scruggs, Carter, Johnson, and Griffin off of this year's team, but the, the cupboard is far from bare heading into that next season. Yeah, I mean, like target a year where they're going to where they look really good. I mean, Kiki Tandy and Zach Fremantle as juniors, uh, Odom Wilcher Jones as sophomores, Kunkel as a junior, Ben Stanley as a senior, Deontay Miles as a redshirt sophomore. I mean, that's a lot of experience right there and a lot of talent. And then that doesn't even count a freshman like Cesar Edwards and, and potentially whoever else they bring in. 
and, and, you know, if Daniel Ramsey can be healthy, him as well. I mean, you're talking basically all four-star type guys who are talented, who will be experienced, and have have a a level of comfort playing with each other because they're going to do that this year. I mean, that 21-22 team, you're looking at it and you're going, well, they got a chance to be special. Dan, I mean, Daniel Ramsey, he obviously has this knee thing and he has to get that sorted out first. So you kind of have to put him in a separate bucket for the time being because you just don't know health-wise where he's at. But when you look at the rest of these names, Stanley, Kunkel, Fremantle, Miles, Tandy, Odom, Wiltshire, Jones, and Cesar Edwards uh, will be a freshman that year. You have really high expectations for pretty much every single one of these guys, right? Oh, yeah. And I, I don't... I don't know if you mentioned Miles, but I think he's like the, the sort of uh, – he's, for lack of a better word, the X factor or the guy that could uh, – he's the guy that basically, it, if he makes strides, uh, his talent and his athleticism and so forth is complete is, – basically there's no ceiling to it. And so he's the kind of guy that if he, if he all of a sudden turns into, you know, I don't know what the correct comparison is, but if he becomes the the kind of elite rim protector and a guy that can score on the other end and be a good rebounder, um, all of a sudden, yeah, you're right. The, uh, the ceiling is very high for that team. Um, I like that there's, that you have a nice mix of talent and guys who have been producers so far. Um, I like the idea of having this kind of, uh, of a diversified attack uh, with, players with with diverse skill sets like Odom, Tandy, and Kunkel as your outside guys. Uh, different skill sets like Fremantle and, uh, and, and potentially Miles and Edwards as your inside guys. I mean, there's a lot of uh, – it, it, it's pretty tantalizing when you think about it. It's, uh, it's unfortunate that it's two years away. But, uh, but, yeah, I'm excited. I'm excited to see where it goes. And, you know, I, I, think, uh, I think also it, it, it matches up well for, uh, for Steele. Because you know his first year was difficult because of the uh, because of the, the 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 flight of talent that that went after Mac and guys graduating, et cetera. And then you know last year was was difficult and ended in a bizarre way. So it's almost like and this year with ever with all the crap that's flying around and with how little we know is almost like a free hit. I mean you can't really. I suspect this year is pro, unless there is a vaccine and unless this kind of is under control by then. I suspect this year is going to be pretty chaotic as well. But that 2021-22 team, that's Travis Steele with the roster he's built, the roster he's put together, um, that he is that he has handpicked basically for the style of basketball he wants to play. And that's where it's and you know, that's where it's that's when it's got to happen, right? Yeah, and Dan, I think that's a good point because it's not like anyone's feeling bad for coaches or judges them rationally or anything. They, they start getting judged the second they, they take over the job, and that's fair. They get paid a lot of money. I get it. But at the same time, from a reasonable and logical perspective here, you're right. You know, Travis Steele's first year, there wasn't really going to be much of a chance. I think they did about as well as they could. Last year, I think there were some people that were disappointed, and I think it's fair to be disappointed in the job the coaching staff did to a certain extent. It's also probably even more disappointment on the side of, that roster never really panned out the way it was supposed to. You, you had some really talented pieces that if you had them each on different teams, you'd love them. But all together, without ever being able to backfill the roster with a, a, a legit shooter and a guy who could have, have some feel and IQ and, and play off those guys on the offensive end, it just wasn't going to work. Um, and and even with that flawed roster last year, they were never fully healthy. Right. And, Steel, and it still wasn't somebody. Steel's guys per yeah. se, right? Uh, but but going into this 2021 season, you're starting to get to the point that it is more of a steel roster. Now, granted, a lot of the, the talent are, are young guys, unproven guys. Um, even Zach Fremantle and Kiki Tandy, Tandem, who we think those two are going to be really good. I go back to Steele's first year when you're thinking, okay, you got Najee Marshall and Paul Scruggs going to be coming to their own with Quentin Gooden, who's got experience. But it it, those guys weren't ready to be quote unquote the guys, or at least that's what we were saying, right? You could very much see the same thing happen with this year's team um, with a Zach Fremantle and a Kiki Tandy. So I think this year was going to be kind of a bubble type year, regardless whether the coronavirus happened or not. But 21 22, that's where things, I mean, Steel really has to put up or shut up at that point. 
And I do think it's also interesting that at this point now, he's clearly made the transfer portal an important part of his recruiting strategy. And I think you can judge him off of that. Uh, the, the first two years, he was scrambling to put together a roster. But this year, you've got four transfers coming in, and you used a couple of those spots that could have been used on 2021 recruits. So um, I, I think that'll be an interesting storyline to follow as we go forward with Steele and the staff as well. Yeah, in terms of the transfer thing, I mean, the first year it was you just needed bodies. Right. You can't have seven guys on a roster. So, And you I mean, took who you could get at, at, uh, that late in the game. I mean, yeah, I mean, transfers the Transfers are guys who couldn't play. Yeah, the only transfer that they actually, like, re- I don't want to say recruited, because obviously they recruited Kyle Castle and Ryan Wellage, but the only one they really, like, tried to get was Zach Fremantle. Hankins. Er, Hankins. Yeah. And Hankins was... I mean, granted, he had committed for six months at that point, but, you know, he was a legit high major big man, period. Um, the other two, you know, they just kind of filled a role and filled a uniform. Then this past year, you know, it was you, – you tried to find find with Bryce Moore kind of missing, and then he gets injured, and it just never works out. So, yeah, I mean, and then Carter was solid. But you start to see, I think the transfer level is different now. It's Carter. It's Ben Stanley who averaged 22 points a game. Right. It's Adam Kunkel who averaged 17 points a game. These are you know, guys you made a conscious decision and said, yeah. I want those over potentially other recruits now. It's not yeah. scrambling to fill out a roster. Like Nate Johnson, like that was a guy that got in the portal and they said, I want this guy. Like he fills what we're looking for. So I, I think that the way they're going to utilize it is different now. And I think you're going to start I – I don't think you're ever for transfers in an offseason again. It's just the way to, to fill. And quite honestly, like two, in their mind, really good players became available super late. So it's like, okay, let's go get them. And, and they did. How much do you think that had to do, Snow, with the fact that this has been such a weird recruiting season and Xavier only has one commit in the 2021 class and therefore had the scholarships? Uh, certainly that played a part. I mean, you started to look at it at the start of last week. They had, what, eight guys set to be on scholarship in 2021-22? Well, now they got 10. A hell of a lot different. And Steele's not a fan of 13 eligible bodies. I mean, I guess this year they're going to have 12. In a perfect world, he'd probably like that at 11, um, 10 or 11, really. Uh, so I don't know, you know, that he's really even going to feel, feel the need in 2021-22 to add transfer. But if the right guy becomes available, he's certainly not going to be shy about it. All right, let's take a look at recruiting, Brian, moving forward. You, you add a couple more transfers in Stanley and Kunkel, and even though they're not your typical recruits freshmen, uh, you know, Stanley's going to be around for two years. Kunkel is going to be around for three. What does this do to the 2021 recruiting class, in your opinion? How many guys are they looking for now at this point, and, and what type of player will they be looking for? I think it's down to one more guy, and it's going to be a perimeter player. And I think the three to watch are uh, Lucas Taylor, Ja'Shawn Holt, and um, Nate Santos. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and quite honestly, my guess is kind of the way Xavier's framing it to him at this point is like, we got one spot, fellas. First one to commit gets it. And we'll, we'll see how well that works for him. But I, I see this being a two-man class unless something kind of happens. In terms of, the, of those three guys, uh, Snow, when you look at what Xavier's looking for from those wings, is there a particular profile they're looking for? Because my recollection is those three guys are pretty different in terms of what their quote unquote uh, translatable skill is. Yeah. Um, I don't know that. I think Lucas Taylor probably fits the best because he can play. He's six, five, six, six. He's long. He's a good athlete. He um, I think he's probably the one who fits the best, but I really like the pairing of Ja'Shawn Holt and Adam Kunkel because Holt's kind of like a, a Colby Jones type where he's versatile. Uh, Holt's a little bit better shooter. Colby's certainly a better ball handler and passer. But they both are good readers, tough kids who can guard multiple spots, who can play multiple spots. And I kind of like having that bigger wing who's more physical next to Kunkel. But, you know, Lucas Taylor works. And then, of course, Nate Santos can really shoot the ball. So I think they're open to any and all options. Uh, but I think they'd like 
like it to be someone with a little bit more size between, you know, 6'4 and 6'6", as opposed to a smaller guard because they have Odom, Kunkel, and Tandy already who are, you know, at best six foot three in Kunkel's case. And then Odom and Tandy are at best six foot one. So they already have kind of the smaller guard market cornered. People are going to start asking about the 2022 class since 2021 is looking like it's starting to wind down. I mean, my opinion is always, 2022 is a long way away. We don't really know what they even need at this point. But Brian, I'm not going to ask you name specific names, but do you see a, a, a prototype of what they might need or some needs and potential needs emerging at least for the 2022 class? I, I would think a scoring point guard, uh, maybe even a combo guard. I would think another power forward and maybe even another center would certainly be in the mix. And that's assuming you get one more wing in this current class. But, uh, you know, sir, look at it, you're, you're going to – Tandy would be a senior. Odom would be a junior in 2022. So you would kind of want to have another ball handler coming into the mix there. Uh, then you're really – your only four-man on the roster would be a sophomore in Cesar Edwards. So you would probably like another four-man. And then you just don't know at the center. So maybe you, you try to add one more like that. I see that being kind of a three- to four-man class especially because the 2022 class nationally looks really, really good right now. So you, you're going to have more options with which to choose. All right. Well, let's uh, switch gears here and, and take a look at the current team. There's not a whole lot going on right now. They're back on campus. Finally, everybody's back. They were tested uh, for COVID. They all got the clear. So they have started team workouts. They're with the coaching staff doing some things. They're doing some lifting. Not a ton to go off of right now, but you, know, you get you get a rumbling here or there, as they say in the biz. Um, Brian, aside from Brian Griffin, is that what they say? That's what they say. Uh, aside okay. from Brian Griffin getting asked to do Sports Illustrated the body issue, what other uh, reports have you heard about the current team? Uh, Colby Jones has impressed, is from what I've heard. Uh, he's he's impressed people with his versatility, with his t- and he's made shots and workout. Now he's not making it like Kiki does or CJ Wiltshire, but he's made shots. So I've heard some good things about Colby Jones. And then, uh, you know, in all seriousness, you know, even though Rick thinks Brian Griffin weighs 345 pounds, um, no, Brian Griffin has opened eyes as someone who can definitely contribute at the high major level. Did Je- Jennings put out the picture today. He looks svelte. He looks very slim. All I'm saying is your narrative is that he's 340. I have never said such a thing. I don't know where you get that. I think he uh, is going to be first team all Big East. So, um, Dan, uh, any any takes on the current team after seeing like two pictures of him? I mean, it, the weight room looks nice. Uh, <laughs> that's about it. I mean, everybody, that whenever they show these pictures of the team, everybody's like, oh, they look great. Well, yeah, they're yeah. 20, and they're, they're working out all the time. Uh, Nate Johnson is the one it's guy. Like they're jumped- showing, it's not like they're showing pictures of us. They're like, oh, those guys look terrible. <laughs> Although, uh, <laughs> what, we should really put Jennings to the test, see what he could do with uh, us. Oh, my God. Three <laughs> there, was a, no, there, was a t- there was a time when I thought it would be, and this was like two or three years ago when I was in a little – when I was, uh, my entire body wasn't falling apart the way it is now, uh, where I thought it would be funny for you and I to as do like a video diary where we did some of the uh, the like end of season conditioning things, like where they run. Like I wouldn't make you run the mile, but I could run the mile and so forth. Wait, what are you uh, saying nowadays? Well, I'm not saying you couldn't run a mile. I'm saying you wouldn't, because why would you? Yeah, no, that's a fair point. Uh, if we did have to do that. Who would who would puke the first and who would quit the first? Out of well, what are the various what are the various events? There's a mile, obviously. Yeah, well, we we have a, have a little uh, cardio, a little conditioning, and and some weights. And, I mean, look, the stretching is going to start making me sweat and feel really <laughs> tired. So I don't think you have to get too far into this day, and you only have to come up with like two activities before I'm out. But well, I'm not I a puker. I, I will not puke. I will say that. I've never I remember from that I, I guess it was when Mac was still. So I don't know if I don't know if Steele does all the same things, but I know when Mac was in, there was like a, a a sequence of like five or six 
met exercises that they did in one day or something like that, or in one week uh, at the beginning of the off season, at the end of the off season. And that was kind of what I was thinking of. I remember it being the mile. Cause I remember Brad Redford ran the best time in the mile. Um, oh yeah. They always do the, the testing, yeah, right? By the way, run. is there anything more useless than a basketball player running the mile? No. Well, like, baseball players running a mile, but yeah. Like Charles Barkley has the best line about that. He goes, you know, the first day of training camp in the NBA, we'd always run the mile. And he goes, I don't remember who won it every year, but I know they never made the team. <laughs> that is true, though. It was that way in high school. The guy who, who won all the sprints always got cut. Yeah, I mean, like, and if you bring it up to coaches, they know it's completely pointless. But it's always like, well, this is just what we do. Yeah, yeah. I, had a, I had a high school coach in the GCL told me we had to do this. So we're, we're all hardos, and that's what we do. <laughs> I actually had a baseball coach uh, at Holy Cross who never made us run. He was the JV coach. And it was always, everyone was always shocked. Like, why is the JV team so good? And those guys get up to varsity, they don't do anything. It's like, oh, because the JV team actually practiced baseball instead of running for the whole preseason. That's, you know, I watched, I watched um, this documentary on ESPN that came out during the, during the, before baseball came back. It was called Koshien. It was about the big Japanese uh, high school tournament. Are you guys familiar with this? It's no. like a huge thing in Japan where like the, the best team from every one of their states or whatever they call them meet in this single elimination tournament. And it's like on national TV and like a lot of the big play, Daisuke Matsuzaka famously pitched like four straight complete games all over 200 pitches in the tournament to win it one year. Um, Shohani or uh, uh, Otani was in it. Um, all, the, all the top Japanese players that have come over played in it. And those guys, like, they talk about their baseball practices and all they do is run. Like, they just run all day. And I was just watching it like, this is insane. What, what are you doing? Like, do you think Pete Cavilia ever ran? He didn't even run to first. If he didn't hit it out of the ballpark, he was just, he was just taking a stroll. So. Did, did, did Adam Dunn, like, one time I pulled, he's like, I'm never doing that again. That's too much running. Uh, he's not wrong. I mean, <laughs> it's a pretty good take on the situation. But anyway, by the way, uh, recommended. I think it's on ESPN Plus. It's called Koshien, K-O-S-H-I-E-N. I don't traffic in Japanese culture too often, so I might have to uh, check that one out. Um, Anything else on the uh, current team or running or working out with Jennings? It just doesn't – working out with Jennings just doesn't seem like fun. The weird thing is Jennings looks like a guy who's after my own heart. Like I feel like Jennings and I eat similar meals. yeah, but then like makes you work out. Which yeah, seems, like not fun. Yeah. Well, that's about all I got. See, you guys got anything else here? Have, when is the have they established when the actual first day of, of official practice is this year, or is that still? They have no year? idea on anything. Yeah, I figured that. And I mean, this is every school. They're just kind of like hell. At this point, you have like head coaches who have been locked up for so long that they're just excited to work with their guys. And, like, the assistants are trying to be like, hey, coach, you realize we not we might not play till January, so we, we might want to wind this down a little bit. <laughs> and there, there's no way to control these madmen. Yeah, it's it's going – I mean, they're just going to keep pushing down the, – for the winter sports, they're going to push the, the can down the road as far – as long as they can. I mean, they're not going to come up with any answers until they see how things are going with the fall sports that are they're trying to make it. Yeah, and, I mean, hopefully – you know, hopefully they figure some things out and, uh, and maybe football can, uh, you know, maybe, maybe they figure out some best practices in football that they can use in basketball and hopefully we'll see most of a season. Dan, can I ask you a lawyery question here? Sure. Um, let's say hypothetically. Oh, like Thanksgiving, a vaccine comes out. Mm-hmm. Like if the NCAA said in order to play in our, you know, play or coach an NCAA sport, you have to get the vaccine. Could legally they do that? Wow. Um. Here's the thing, Dan. You can answer anything, and we won't know if that's right or not. So just say whatever you want. I guess in general, I would say that as long as – I, I don't think that there's any constitutional right to play sports in college. I think if 
if a university, if a state university said you have to get this vaccine in order to go to school here, I'm a little dicey on that. But I know that public school kids have to be vaccinated for certain things uh, to be to be admitted in some cases, although I, I know there is a growing tendency of some people not to get their kids vaccinated, which is loony. But um, but I think they could, but I, I, I'm sure there would be litigation over it. I mean, there would be people that say that it's a religious belief that they shouldn't get this vaccine. And then that implicates a lot of other things. Um, yeah. I mean, it, th- that's a tough one. I, I don't know the answer, Snow. I, I, there's a lot of different branches that it could go into. It'd be a good bar exam question if you want to make somebody's head explode. Um, but Honestly, the old uh, smallpox vaccine defense was a pretty good one, though, Dan. I didn't think of that. The smallpox vaccine? Yeah, you have to have the smallpox vaccine to send your kids to school. What's any different to having a coronavirus vaccine? Well, and also there's the fact that there's a difference between sending your kids to school. There, there are certain things that are like identified as like basic rights in our society. Um, playing Division One basketball certain, is not one. Playing Division One basketball to the while some people haven't come to this realization yet is not one of them. No, um, and and there are guys that are excluded from playing Division One basketball for a lot of different behaviors. Right? Um, you know, we had one that was supposed to come to Xavier and didn't come to Xavier because of behaviors. Oh, geez. Um, <laughs> so I, I mean, it's dark. So I, I don't. I, I, I don't know. I, I think it'd be a very interesting question for somebody who knows more about this stuff than I do. But I know from my job, which is in the employment law sphere, that uh, we have taken a pretty strong uh, uh, approach that if you have been exposed to COVID or if you test positive for COVID or if you have symptoms of COVID, uh, you're not allowed to come to work. And uh, depending on the circumstances, you may have to stay out for up to two weeks. Um, and that's as far as I'm aware, that's defensible uh, 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 legally. So I, I could see it. I could see it. But you would be running into a serious question because, as, as you guys know, everything associated with this virus has become a political football. And a vaccine coming out, uh, there are people who will refuse to get the vaccine if they don't feel that it's politically aligned with whatever they believe. Uh and so I, I, I don't know. I think if, an, if a vaccine is developed, part of the problem is going to be getting people to take it. Um, I don't know. That's not an answer, but that's the best I can do. We should just tell all those people that if they take the vaccine, everybody will stand for the national anthem. Oh, God. <laughs> but, but think about it from the other hand. But, but, you know, and that's that, that I, you know, I appreciate the joke, but think about the other way. Let's say if two weeks before the election, the current president comes out and says, hey, we've just approved a vaccine. We fast tracked it through uh, fast tracked it through the FDA approach. You know, we've 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 subverted a few of the testing testing steps. But we think it's that important to get out to the people. All right. Are you are, are you going to be comfortable taking that? I've shot up I'm worse things. I'm more comfortable taking a vaccine than taking a virus. I mean, I agree with you, but if it's not, if, if it's something that feels like it might have been rushed through for non-good reasons, for non-medical reasons, so, I, and I, that's I, just a hypothetical. I'm not saying I certainly would never accuse our, uh, our leadership of, uh, of doing something that reckless, but it is what it is. Seems like a good spot to end this one. Meow. Hey. Anyone got anything else? All right. You've been listening to another edition of the Data Victory Podcast, only available on musketeerreport.com. For the legend, Brian Snow and Dan, I'm Rick. Thanks for listening, everyone. (laughs) 